Welcome to the Bethel Church Austin Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this sermon by a special guest speaker. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com. I'm super excited about being here. And I, I, I'm, I have to say that I'm surprised at how fast this church is growing. And... Uh, <laughs> The way that came out isn't the way I actually meant it. <laughs> it almost sounded like, I didn't really believe in you. I didn't mean that. I just mean churches don't grow this fast. It's just amazing, and I'm super excited about, about what's happening here. And I, We sent Banning out, and his church grew just like this, and I was like, Banning told me he wanted to start a church, and I was like, Banning, I was like, oh, Lord Jesus, who's going to go to Banning's church? And then there are like 2,700 people in this by second year. I'm like, there's a lot of people that want to go to Banish Church. And, <laughs> so we tease him all the time. But no, on a serious note, we're so proud of these guys and just uh, what, what you're doing and the way you're building and building for longevity. Super, super fun. So um, I, I, I want to give away a few things before I teach, if that's okay. Um, this is a book I wrote uh, several years ago called Spirit Wars. Winning the Invisible Battle Against Sin and the Enemy. And uh, I wish I could tell you that I, I studied a lot. <laughs> this is Texas, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yes, I got you. Okay, you, you can have it. We'll, we'll get her to you. Get down now. Thank you. <laughs> In our church, security would have carried your butt out by now. <laughs> just joking um, you know I wrote this book I wish I could say that I wrote it from some study I did but instead I wrote it from my own demonization <laughs> you know when you write a book the, the publisher sends you this little note and they, they ask you like 10 questions and the first question is why did you write this book <laughs> and the next question is what qualifies you to write this book I'm like, well, I was demonized, I lost my mind, and they're like, all right, well, that might sell. <laughs> so um, who would like, oh, okay, I promised you, you can have this book. I wanted to give it to someone who was demonized. <laughs> come, come get it. <laughs> that was a joke. You're a good man. Thank you. And uh, this is my very first book, Supernatural Ways of Royalty. Uh, Who would like this book? Awesome. You could buy it over there. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to make so much money this week. (laughs) That's why I wrote Poverty, Riches, and Wealth. Poverty, Riches, and Wealth. That's why I wrote this book, so that I could have riches. (laughs) You know, I'm a prophet. So you have to make it profit, otherwise you'll be a false prophet. You don't want to be a non-profit corporation, do you? Okay. I'm really not doing a very good job tonight giving these things away. So um, who would like this? Mary, why don't you help me here? Last time Mary helped me, she got a husband. True story. Tell them, Mary. It's true, right? Mary. Last time you helped me. 
Did you get a man? And two years before that, my other PA helped me give out books. And I told them, she's single, do something about that. She's married to a man who met her at the book giveaway. So is there a single woman up here? Yeah, a single woman? Okay, you right there, you look like you need a man. Come over here. Come on up here. Okay, so turn around. This woman is single. She's beautiful, absolutely. So this is my book, Power, Riches, and Wealth. Thank you very much. God bless you. May all your camels prosper and none of them have ticks. Um, and we're going to, uh, let's see, Mary gave me some instructions. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I'm supposed to share why I wrote Poverty, Riches, and Wealth. I think I did a good job at that. Um, you can download the first chapter. Are you going to? Oh, yeah, you can download the first chapter right there for free. And then we're doing a book sign. All right, why don't you grab a hand? The person next to you. And if you're single and you'd like to date the person next to you, just squeeze their hand. Just. Actually, so far, 12 people, 12 couples, 24 people have gotten married this way. This is better than eHarmony, especially when you know that my angel is Cupid. Okay, let go. We're going to pray now. Lord, we thank you for these people. And Lord, we thank you for the speaker. We pray that you would not humble him right now. And Lord, we pray that you would just open our eyes to receive, open our hearts to receive, open our ears to receive tonight. And Lord, I pray that we'd be really receptive tonight. That if we hear something new, that it wouldn't be our nature to resist it. But Lord, we'd be like the Bereans who consider it deeply. I mean, bless what you're doing here not just here in this location, but all over Texas, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing in Texas, and we bless um, these people. Amen. Amen. Um, I want to talk to you about, um, I actually want to talk about becoming an apostolic people, and I'm going to start out tonight, I think I have three sessions total, is that true? I'm going to start out tonight with a, a, um, a message that you may have heard before, because um, I feel like it's a foundation for what I'm going to teach in the next two sessions. So forgive me if you've heard this before. I did uh, kind of wrestle with whether I should start at the second part of this message, but I, I do feel like I'm supposed to do this. So I, I want to talk a little bit. This message is, uh, talk, is called Living in the River. And um, I, I want to say that it's really important that we understand what season we're in, what epoch season, E-P-O-C-H. And um, E-P-O-C-H in, in, um, in the Bible, epoch, or some, I would say, epic, it means a way in which God deals with a certain people in a certain time. A way in which God deals with a certain people in a certain time. In, uh, in, when the children of Israel, for example, when they left Egypt, 
How many know Egypt was the land of not enough? Remember, they didn't even have enough straw to make bricks. It was just a prophetic declaration that they were in the land of not enough. And they went into the wilderness, and how many know the wilderness was not supposed to be a place they lived? They were supposed to pass through, and it was a land of just enough. Remember, they had manna. They could only collect manna for one day. It was the land of just enough. But God had a promised land, which was what? The land of more than enough. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. And when they crossed the Jordan River, and you'll remember that everybody who crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, except for Joshua and Caleb, were all born in the wilderness. They didn't know Egypt. They were born in the wilderness. And the only thing that they had eaten for 40 years was manna. Manna morning, breakfast, lunch, dinner, manna. And the, and the day that they crossed the Jordan River, the Bible says that the manna ceased, Exodus 16, 35. The manna ceased. They had a supernatural weather system, remember this? Fire by night, cloud by day. The supernatural food system ceased. It was called angel food. And the supernatural weather system ceased when they crossed the Jordan River. And God said, welcome to the promised land. Isn't it interesting that the miracles, their, their welfare system ceased, and God went from doing miracles to them to doing miracles through them. Now, I, I want you just to kind of place yourself in their shoes, if you will, because we realize the manna ceased, and we kind of read the book and like, yeah, the manna ceased. But remember that all they've ever known was manna. <laughs> All they've ever known is a supernatural weather system. And so you can imagine when they crossed the Jordan River and the Manassees, they probably thought, well, we're on a seven-day fast. Because they had been required to fast wilderness at times. And then by you know, day eight, oh, we're in a 14-day fast. And then we're in a 21-day fast. And about day 42, I think that you know, Mary looked at Joel and said, you need to get a job. <laughs> and he's like, what's a job, you know? And that's why they put the book of Job in the Bible. <laughs> On a serious note, they had never worked before. And my point is this, is that when they stepped over the Jordan River, now I, I, I know that it's not a metaphor. I want you to understand that I actually believe those events took place. But I'd propose that when they stepped over the Jordan River or through the Jordan River in the first heaven, which... Uh, let me just explain quickly, like the Bible talks of three heavens. Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. How many know that's the visible kingdom? What you can see, God calls this a heaven. And in Ephesians chapter 6, it tells us there are principalities and powers, evil spirits if you will, in heavenly places. How many know there are no demons in God's heaven? We call that the second heaven. And then it says that Paul said... I knew a man who was taken to the third heaven, and, I, and he saw things indescribable. We know he was actually talking about himself, but the point I'm making is he talked about a third heaven. Are you, are you following me? When we received Jesus Christ and we were born again, we were seated in heavenly places with Christ. How many understand that we weren't seated in the second heaven, we were seated in the third heaven? Far above what? All principalities and powers and every name that's ever been named. And how many know that it says that he decreed that all of those names would be under the feet, which is the church. 
So in other words, how many understand that you're seated in the third heaven? But not only are you seated in the third heaven, but how many understand that above every name that's ever been named? So do you know that there are levels of demonic power, right? Jesus talked about if you cast a demon out of a person and you don't fill it with him with the Holy Spirit, seven spirits, what? More evil than the first come back. How many understand that there are levels of angels in the third heaven? And before you were born again, you were born a little lower than the angels, the psalmist wrote. But when you were born again, you were born in a way that you were born higher than angels. And Hebrews 1 says the angels are servants of those who receive salvation. So you're, you're not seated with the angels. You're seated above the angels, and you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Are you following me? Why is this important? Well, because think about it. You're seated. You're the first creature. You know, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have, and all things have become new. The word new there is the word prototype. It means never before created. When you received Jesus Christ, you actually became a new species of creature. As far as we know, we're the first creature to live on earth and in heaven simultaneously. Now, there may be others, but as far as we know, we're the only creature to live dual dimensionally. We live on earth and in heaven. The question is, do we live from earth towards heaven, or do we live from heaven towards earth? Are you with me? Do you understand when Adam and Eve ate the whatever fruit? I think they were figs. They still have a negative effect on my body. <laughs> Get you in the flow, if you know what I mean. Close to the throne. But anyway, I feel playful tonight. So it's like, actually, I feel playful every night. So. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, I've heard people preach that they disobeyed God. And that's how they lost the commission. You remember in Genesis chapter 1, the first commission to man was be fruitful and multiply. That's have sex. Right there in the book. After you're married. I don't think you have to say that in Texas. When you're in California, you've got to explain a whole lot more about that. And the next command to man was be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. Lead the earth. Be leaders of the earth. So God gave the earth to man. The psalmist wrote, The heavens, the highest heavens, belong to the Lord, but the earth has been given to the sons of men. So when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they didn't just disobey God. They obeyed the devil. How many understand? God said, don't eat the fruit. The devil said, eat the fruit. And they changed masters. And Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the wilderness in the 40-day fast. And he meets the devil, you know, in the mother of all battles. You, you, you know that story. And one of the things the devil says to him is, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, for they have been handed over to me. Who handed them over to them? Adam. Adam changed masters. So why did God have to become a man? 
to redeem man. Because God gave the earth to man. So the Son of God had to become the Son of Man so that sons of men could become sons of God. So it was important that Jesus become a man so that he could win back authority. Are you with me? To man. It's interesting, and I think it's a, it's a great side note, uh, and probably a really a powerful message, but the devil offered Jesus a shortcut to his destiny. If you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus said, I'll, I'll see you in three years. I'll get them back. I'll get back the kingdoms of the world, but I won't worship you to do it. I'll beat you on the cross. And beat you, and beat you, and beat you. <laughs> and continue to beat you. Have you ever thought about why God put the devil on the same planet he put you on? I mean, why not Mars? Pluto would be awesome. Another universe would be even better. He didn't put the devil on the planet to torment you. He put you on the planet to torment him. You are part of his sentence. Before God throws him into the lake of fire, he wanted you to tread on him. And do you know why the devil hates you? You're like, why does the devil hate me? Like, what have I ever done to him? Oh, you have what he wants. What is that? He said, I'll be like God. And I will rise to the heights of heaven. And God said, no, you won't. I'll thrust you down to the earth. What did the devil want? He wanted to sit among the assembly of God. And he wanted to be like God. God goes, I'll thrust you down to the earth and I'll make a whole new creature that's in my image and I'll raise them up and seat them in heavenly places where you want it to be and then I'll put them over you. So, what, what am I saying? So back to the children of Israel. <laughs> that was... We may not finish this message this week. <laughs> when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River in the first heaven, everybody understand what I say when I say first heaven? When they crossed the Jordan River in the first heaven, I propose that they cross over into a new epoch season in the third heaven. Remember, what does epoch mean? A way in which God deals with a certain people in a certain time. When they were on, on this side of the river, in the wilderness side of the river, how many know they were in the land and the epoch season of just enough? But when they crossed the Jordan River, they stepped into a new epoch season in which they were in the land of more than enough. Are you with me? Isaiah 42, 9 says, Behold, the former things have come to pass. Behold, I proclaim a new thing to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. I'd like to propose that God is actually not talking about singing in that verse. The worship leaders love that verse. Because <laughs> I can't sing, that isn't what it means to me. I believe he's saying, the former things have come to pass. Behold, I proclaim new thing to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. I'd like to propose he's using the word sing to mean a new season will require a new way of thinking. He's using the word song to mean a new way of thinking. 
I, I, uh, Christine Kane was at our church, I don't know, two or three years ago, and she was taught out of Isaiah 42.9, and she made a point that I hadn't missed. She said, God's not doing the next thing. He didn't say, the former things have come to pass. Behold, I proclaim the next thing to you. He said, I proclaim the new thing to you. And her point is, is that if God was doing the next thing, the former thing would have something to do with what we're doing. But God's doing a new thing. He's doing something he's never done before. Therefore, where we've been has nothing to do with where we're going. Are you with me? And what I'm getting at is that we need a new song. In, uh, in, in, John, I'm sorry, in Matthew 11, verse 16, Jesus is, is saying to the Pharisees, John sang the dirge. The dirge is the song they sang at funerals. And you didn't mourn. And he said, I played the flute, which is the, which is the, the wedding song, and you didn't dance. The point he's making is, you didn't know what time it was. In fact, he goes on to tell them that you can discern if it's going to be a good day or a bad day by looking at the sky, but you don't know what time it is. And the point is, is that they didn't understand epoch seasons, and so they weren't singing the right song at the right time. The sons of Issachar were famous for many things, but the one thing they were famous for in the Old Testament was the sons of Issachar were men who understood the times, epoch. And they knew what Israel should do in the times. My question is, what time is it? See, because if you don't know what time it is, how many understand that if you're not congruent with the third heaven and you're living in the first heaven, then the second heaven has power over you? This is much bigger than you think. Because the church does not lead from heaven towards earth, we are, in order to try to be relevant to the world, we mirror them. We are mirroring what we're supposed to be shining in. It doesn't say arise and reflect. It says arise and shine. We're reflecting culture because we're leading from the first heaven and the second heaven is dictating what's relevant. And I'm saying if we were leading from heavenly places, we'd be dictating what's relevant. Are you with me? And we feel like victims, like, oh, we're so, oh, the world's so evil. Things are so evil. Things are, you know, it's like, I just, I like, shut up. <laughs> you, do you understand that Jesus disarmed and defeated the devil on the cross, Colossians 1? Disarmed and defeated. He got no arms and he got no feet. <laughs> you got a swimming pool? His name be Bob. Okay, you didn't get that anyway. One of, my favorite, one of my favorite, there's a dead spot right here, isn't there? One of my favorite, I just hope there's no dead spots out there. You understand what I just said? Okay. One of my favorite quotes is Eric Hoffer said, In times of change, learners inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully prepared for a world that no longer exists. In times of change, learners, people who are continually learning, inherit the earth. While the learned, the people who think they know it all, find themselves beautifully prepared 
but for a world that no longer exists. That's called religion. You know, if you look back long enough, you'll become a monument instead of a movement. Ask Lot's wife. You know, the challenge, oh, okay. I have all these tangents in my brain. Go this way. Yeah, <laughs> is that the Holy Ghost? It's a ghost, but is it the right one? I don't know about you, but like I am so tired of hearing about the way it was. Like this theme song of the church is the way we were. I mean, I mean, history's great. I mean, I think we should honor the past, but live in the present and look to the future. Can you imagine, like, technologists, like, we just need to get back to the light bulb. That Edison, he had something going on. That's the church. It's like, no, that Jesus movement, that's the last time you saw God. That's why you still want that. I'm waiting on the Lord. He ain't that slow, dude. He freaking passed you up like 25 years ago. He's, you're waiting. You need to be running. Sorry, is freaking a bad word here? Uh, I'm from California, man. We say all kinds of stuff. You'll be, might be surprised at the kind of words we use. <laughs> we have spiritualized them. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you sanctified a whole bunch of words. But then when you go other places, people are like, oh, Johnny, put your hands over your ears. Twenty-one years ago, I was laying on the floor in our little apartment. We had come to Bethel, and we were maybe there four months or five months. And we're living in a little apartment, and and I I was having an encounter. I had a encounter with the Lord, and I was just laying on the floor. And the Lord said to me, "We're moving from denominationalism to apostleships." Ask me what that means. Now I knew it had to be the Lord because I don't use words with that many syllables. I never heard the word denominationalism before. So I said, Lord, what does that mean? He said, he said, in denominationalism, people gather when they agree. And by the way, I'm talking about the ism, so I'm not talking about denominations. I see as much as denominationalism in apostolic networks as I see in any denominational church. So I'm not talking about what it says over the door of your church. I'm talking about what it says over the door of your heart. Back to the encounter. So I'm laying on the floor, and the Lord says, we're moving from denominationalism to apostleships, ask me what that means. I said, what does that mean? He said, denominationalism, people gather when they agree, and they divide when they disagree. And this is what he said to me. I'm about to pour out revelation on this generation that's been held in the vaults of heaven since the eons of ages. Even the angels long to look into the revelation I'm about to release on this generation. You know, Daniel said in the last days, knowledge will increase, and we think it's the Internet, but I propose it's the knowledge of the glory of the Lord that is deep and wide as the water covers the sea. It is deep, but it's wide. And the Lord said to me, but if I pour out revelation on this, on this, on this wineskin that people gather when they agree and they divide when they disagree, it will rip the wineskin. You know, the nature of revelation is that you haven't ever heard it before. 
I love what John Maxwell says. He said, the first time you hear truth, the first time, you say, I don't agree with that. The second time you hear the same thing, you say, I've heard that before. And the third time you hear the same thing, you say, isn't that a great idea I had? <laughs> it's a process of truth. And, uh, and the Lord asked me a question like, do you, do you know, um, I, I, I don't know a lot about church history. I, I, I like when other people teach it. But when they hand me the book that they learned it from, it's so freaking thick. Like, I am not reading that. I'd rather watch Braveheart and see what I can learn from that, you know? So I like when other people teach it, but it's too slow moving for my movie. Anyway, but, you know, Martin Luther left the Catholic Church. And he left over, he didn't leave over, you know, um, social issues you know, he left, remember the 95 Theses he nailed to the wall of the Catholic Church? He left because he disagreed. Now, should he have left? I have no idea. Like, I, I, really, I really am not smart enough to understand all of that happened. But he left because he disagreed. Are you following me? And the Lord asked me a question, how many times is the Catholic Church split? The Catholic Church? I, I'm, I don't know. Never? And he said, what do they call the leaders of their churches? Father. How many times is the Protestant church split in 500 years? By the way, I was preaching that one day, and a, a, a Catholic theologian came up, and he said the Catholic church has actually split twice. Like, okay, twice in 2,000 years. How many times is the Protestant church split in 500 years? Oh, let me make it easier. In the last 30 days. Are you, are you flowing with me at all? Are you get, I, I, I'm simply saying that our forefather, Luther, left because he didn't agree. I don't know if he should have or not, or he shouldn't have. I don't, I, that's not my point. But my point is, he left because he didn't agree. And he created denominationalism. And we gather when we agree, and we would divide when we disagree. I'm, I got more to say. I'm just waiting for people if there's dead spots. Okay, so what do you have to do if you're a shepherd in denominationalism? If I say denomination, I mean ism, no matter what I say, okay? What, if I am a shepherd in a denominational ism church, and I know that my people are there because they agree, this is don't think deep, okay? Don't think deep. What do I have to make sure they don't do? Disagree. So what's it take to have a disagreement? An opinion. What's it take to have an opinion? A thought. What do I have to make sure you don't do? Think. So I don't preach to inspire you. I preach to convince you. Why? Because if you start thinking, you'll wreck our church. You want to know why the greatest minds of our time are almost no Christians in the, in the information, the, in the twilight of the information age? Do you know why there's Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Bill Joy, Hewlett Packard? Do you know why none of those guys were believers? Because believers don't think. 
You know why some of the most brilliant people in the world, Elon Musk, are atheists? Not because he's smarter, but because he's got permission to think. Okay, it's going to get worse before it gets better. It'll, I, got, I got a plan. I know where I'm going, but it's very hard to prepare for the jungle when you're trained in the zoo. We have domesticated the line of the tribe of Judah. We have, we have re... I'm telling you the truth. You hear people all the time, when they describe Jesus, it sounds like Buddha. Oh, Jesus would never offend anybody. Jesus kissed baby's heads. I'm like, what Bible are you reading? Jesus was a radical revolutionary. They didn't kill him because he was nice. I'm, okay, I'm, I know. No, I'm saying Christians are freaking chickens. Like, grow up and start shining and stop reflecting. Lead, follow, get out of the way. But don't talk if you're afraid. Sorry, I don't know if I've said that before, but it felt so good. It's one of those things you wake up tomorrow morning going, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. And, and like, did you stream that? Take that down. <laughs> In denominationalism, people gather when they agree and they divide when they disagree. Also, in denominationalism, how do I become the leader? I go to seminary, I get a degree, therefore I are the leader. You know why I'm the leader? Because I'm the most qualified. It's gift-based leadership. Well, that's good. You want to have a guy that's not gifted, a gal who's not gifted? No. But the problem is, is that there are a gift, call, and anointing to be a leader. Your gifting gives your ability. Your calling gives your identity. And your anointing gives your purpose. If you have gift-based leadership, what's the challenge with that? Well, I'm leading because I'm the most gifted. What happens if someone outgrows me? They are my enemy. And I create a core structure in which I'm not the floor, I'm the ceiling. No one can get bigger than me. Because anyone who starts to outgrow me is a threat to my leadership because I'm not here because I'm called, I'm here because I'm gifted. When Paul said, I, the least of all apostles, not chosen by man, but by God, when he said, me, the least of all the apostles, he wasn't saying, I'm a loser. He was saying, I am called as an apostle. I'm not gifted as an apostle. I am first called as an apostle. You can't take me out because you didn't put me here. And you'll notice that the apostles and prophets are what? The foundation of the church. How many know that our, our ceiling needs to be the floor of the next generation? And I actually measure success by how many people outgrow me. So, so in denominationalism, the structure is all about making sure people get along. And so we have, we, we redefine scripture. Like the unity of the spirit is people getting along. Jesus couldn't even get 12 disciples to get along when he was with them. People were like, if we could just get along, we could change the world. Jesus couldn't get 12 guys to get along, and they changed the world, and they didn't have any, 
amplification planes, trains, or automobiles. And, they, and you're like, well, yes, but after they were born again, they still didn't get along. <laughs> Peter and Paul did not like each other. Barnabas and, and Paul had a big argument and split the church. And, and they still changed the world. We redefine loyalty. Loyalty means agreeing with me. No, actually, loyalty is only tested when we disagree. I'm saying we are reading the Bible through denominational glasses and we are reteaching things that aren't true to our people so that they, so that they won't argue. Are you with me? How many know that God put two trees in the garden? God did. You're like, well, the devil talked Adam into eating the wrong one. But God planted it. You're not even knowing where I'm going. I'm saying, yes, the devil gets credit for convincing them to eat it. But if God didn't want them to eat the tree, why did he put two out there? I mean, why plant the second tree? You're like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. This is a very confusing message. Because the only way to get a reward for doing the right thing is to have the opportunity to do the wrong one. See, people like, if God is love, then why is there evil? Why is, why is the children molested? Why are, because love requires choice. God could program you to instinctively like people, but he can't program you to love anyone. Love requires free will. Why did God put another God on the earth? Because you have to have a choice. God's like, choose me or choose me. So God goes, I'll put a God of this world on the earth so that you have a choice. I'll make him really ugly, really terrible. But you have a choice. How many know in denominationalism, we cut down the second tree and call it sanctification? And God calls it control. I don't even know if you know where I'm going. But denominationalism doesn't just affect the church. It affects the world. I propose that polit the political spirit is a denominational spirit. We think we elect officials to make everything that's sin illegal. And I propose that God gave people permission to sin with a cost. Do you know Jesus made wine for people who were already drunk? Americans hate that verse. You should see the Facebook post I get. No, that's wrong. Jesus would never, he would never, he said, lead us not into temptation. I didn't say he led them into temptation. I said he gave them the opportunity to be tempted. Well, some people will say, well, it was grape juice. Oh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> most, you know, Jesus. Well, most people, the, the one, I'm saying the cupbearers, the waiters. Oh, most people serve the good grape juice first. I mean, I haven't even finished. You're already like, that's stupid. <laughs> and when they have fully drunken, then they serve the cheap grape juice. <laughs> no, that's stupid. I don't care if you're an American. That's still stupid. <laughs> the Europeans get this. And when all Americans like, 
Jesus wouldn't do that. He did. The Greek word is metros. It means drunk, intoxicated. Most people serve the good wine until people are drunk. Then they serve gallo. Because no one gives a crap what you're drinking when you're drunk. Like, I'll take, does it have alcohol in it? Just give me some more. <laughs> Why did Jesus do that? Because the only way you can get a reward for doing the right thing is to have the opportunity to do the wrong one. And Jesus is returning, and his, re his reward is with him. Are you with me? In denominationalism, I don't want people to think. I, I believe that people thinking is dangerous. Well, I'm sorry. It was God's idea to allow people to think. So in teach, instead of teaching people how to think in denominationalism, I teach them what to think. A whole bunch of parents raise kids like this. We take away all their choices. Our kids are 18. They've never had, they've, you know, we homeschool them. Just great. As long as you're like teaching them karate while you're in there and exposing them to the world. Oh, I, I like homeschooling. We better move on. No, on a serious note, I think it's all fine as long as we're not trying to keep our children from the big bad world. I don't know what the heck we think is going to happen when they get 18. And they move out of the homeschool house where their, their mother and father kept in this little bubble like, no one's going to hurt my little child. They're not prepared for life. How do you prepare for the zoo if you train in the jungle? I don't know how many we're going to have tomorrow. But in apostleships, the Lord said we're moving from denominationalism to apostleships. In apostleships, I don't choose, I don't choose the place I go to church because I agree. I choose them because they're my family. I go, there's my dad, there's my mom, my crazy uncle. Every family has a crazy uncle. <laughs> Funny, you raised your hand over there. Yes, sir. <laughs> we acknowledge that we let you in here. <laughs> You know your crazy uncle? He's the person that when your friends come over that shows you, you keep them in the basement and you'll feed them through a knot hole. <laughs> and you pray he doesn't get out while your friends are there. Because you choose your friends, but you don't choose your family. Are you with me? You know where I'm going, right? Are you understanding? And I'm saying, if you're here because you're family, it creates a wholly different wineskin. Because the truth is, is that revelation requires a wineskin that's flexible and current. And that means that the wineskin has to be able to flex with revelation. I don't leave because I disagree. Disagreement is part of life. The only way to not have a disagreement in your marriage is to have a master-slave relationship. People are like, my wife and I have never argued. That's a sad marriage. That's how we are, like Kathy's so controlling. 
And where I'm going is this, is that in, in, in apostleships, or shall we say in family, we measure success by how many people outgrow us. I have a dream. I want to tell you about it. You know, um, Jesus, James, Peter, and John all said this. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. They said it a little different ways. James said, if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted at the proper time. But three, including Jesus, people in the New Testament said, if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. Why is it in most churches you can be humble but not exalted? Because the goal of humbling yourself is that you'd be exalted. But we have the tall poppy syndrome. Anybody who gets exalted is like, we'll help you, Lord. We'll cut them down. You know, if you go to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, I'm sorry, there's great universities here. I just don't know what they are because I never went to one. I have no education. Baylor. You go to a great university... Is that a good university? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but this message is not flowing very smoothly. <laughs> These guys can testify that I can preach. I'm just not doing it tonight very well. If you graduate from an Ivy League university... People feel like you're going to be somebody amazing. You know, I, I, in a serious note, I've never been to university, but when somebody, I've interviewed many people, I'm a graduate of Princeton, and I, I don't even know anything about Princeton, but there's just a, a there's a stigma. I, am I making sense? Like, joking aside, there's a stigma like, you must be somebody amazing. You graduate from Harvard. You must be somebody amazing. I mean, when a president of the United States has a, Harvard degree. He's running for president. He has a Harvard degree. I think we all think, well, well, of course he's going to be president. He's, he's a graduate of Harvard or Princeton or Sanford or someplace. If your last name is Bush or Clinton or Kennedy or nowadays Trump, you have a name like that, the paparazzi drive you crazy. Your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, they don't leave the Kennedys alone. And John Kennedy hasn't been president since 1963 or something. And what I'm getting at is that his great-grandkids are still in the news. Like, because of what? Their name. What would happen if the church became the most empowering organization in the history of the world? And people like me, like, I've never been to Princeton. I don't know anything about it, but... As soon as you say Princeton, I'm like, graduate Princeton, wow. What would it be like if people said, oh, you go to that church down the street? And it had a stigma. Great people come from that church. See, because part of what happens in my mind is great people come to church. But they don't typically come from the church. They usually have to leave the church to become great. And then when, we, when they come, we treat them like, like, we're, like we're like freaking peasants. Can I have a selfie? Show my, my mama. We have to hide them. 
because we're a bunch of little people. And somebody big comes in, we're like, someone's important is in here. I propose there's like a thousand important people in the room. You're the only one who doesn't know it. No, I'm trying. And, and, and I'm saying, what would happen if we began to actually believe that God wants us to take Isaiah 61? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, speak release to captive, freedom to prisoners, the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to grant all those who mourn in Zion, give them a garland instead of ashes, a mantle of praise, instead of the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he be glorified. What's the next verse say? Then they shall return. Who's the they? The captive, the prisoner, the broken mind, the mentally ill, the, 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 the exhausted, all of those people who got delivered, healed, and restored, then they shall return. And they shall raise up the former devastations and rebuild the ruined cities. Who's rebuilding the ruined cities? The people who came to church broken, demonized, mentally ill, exhausted, broken-hearted. God goes, I'm going to take those folks, and I'm going to fix them, and then I'm going to send them into the city. I'm going to send them back into the city, and they're going to be called, listen to this, the restore of the breach. They shall raise up the former foundations, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities. This is what we're doing. We're taking broken people, we're getting them well, and then we're equipping them to change the world. Are you with me? <laughs> apostles, what's an apostle? I hear people say, apostles are fathers. Okay, well, my son's got three kids, so he's an apostle. Well, apostles do miracles. I thought Jesus said these are the signs that follow those who believe. You know, uh, the word apostle um, was actually invented by the Greeks about three to 500 years before Christ. So some people are like, how come the word apostle isn't in the Old Testament? The word wasn't invented. Your words mean different things in different seasons, right? Like I remember when a hard drive was a rough road. <laughs> how big's your hard drive? Five miles? <laughs> so the word apostle wasn't invented. But the word, as you probably know, it means sent one. But it actually means to be sent from a place to another place. To reproduce in the place you're sent to what you were sent from to the place you're sent to looks like the place you're sent from. Um, we call that tra cultural transformation. And so the Romans... In the days of Christ, they were ruling the Jews. And the Romans were conquering. They were like Hitler. Like Their goal was to conquer the known world. And they would go out and they would conquer a city and conquer another city and conquer another city. And then they would come back to the first city they conquered, and the people would be back to their old ways. And the Romans said, you know, when you're in Rome, you do as the Romans do. And they said, why are we conquering but not culturizing? So they took this Greek idea, and they took some of their generals, and they named some of their generals apostles. 
is a secular word, word with a secular idea. is actually a Greek idea. And then they sent those apostle generals out to conquer. But with the military also went politicians and artists and musicians. And you, you get the idea. So they would conquer and culturize, conquer and culturize until the city they conquered looked like Rome. Okay, you get it? So these are the people, these are the generals that the disciples understood. So Jesus, he could have called his disciples, there was 12 disciples, there was 12 patriarchs, he could have called them patriarchs. He could have called them priests, right? There was a whole Levitical priestly order, of which Jesus was actually a member of the priestly order. He could have, he could have, called, them, he could have called them prophets, there was a whole school of prophets. But instead, when he promotes them from learners to leaders, he calls them apostles. you got to understand, like, this, you don't get it, because that word is kind of a spiritual, religious word. But in their day, it had nothing to do with religion. And then he gives them an apostolic prayer. What's the prayer? Our Father in heaven. Come on, help me. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be on as it is in where are you seated? In heavenly places. What's your job? To make earth look like heaven. That's the apostolic prayer. No, you're not getting it. Like, like we preach the gospel of salvation, but this is the gospel of the kingdom. Are you with me? We spend all our time trying to get people to heaven. But the prayer wasn't getting about getting people to heaven. The only prayer we were ever told to pray, and I know we should pray more, I get it, but the model prayer was about getting heaven in people. It is an apostolic prayer. God's just not trying to save you. He's trying to make you look like heaven. This... What do apostles do? Well, they might be fathers. They might be mothers. They, they have to do miracles. All those things are true. But if they don't transform culture, they're not apostolic. I don't mean they're not amazing. <laughs> How many know there's more than apostles? We need evangelists. We need pastors. We need teachers. We need prophets. But I'm saying what makes an apostle an apostle is that they transform culture. <laughs> so people are like, well, that man must be an apostle. He's planted 50 churches. If you plant 50 churches and those churches don't transform culture, they're not apostolic. I'm not saying they're not amazing. I'm just saying they're not apostolic. Okay, I'm going to give you a statistic that if you haven't heard before, if you're like me, you probably won't believe it. When I wrote the book Heavy Rain, it's about apostolic ministry. I was going to write it, apostolic ministry, but no one would buy it. So we did a statistical study on American cities. Actually, I didn't do it. I had a PA do it. And this is what I learned. The cities that had the greatest Christian church-going population had the worst social statistics in our nation. Okay, you probably didn't get what I just said because I didn't get it when Todd brought me the info. The more people that go to a Christian church in any given city, the worse off the social statistics are. Crime rises as more people go to church. Poverty rises. Joblessness rises. Divorce rises. Alcoholism 
rises. Drug addiction rises in every city in America except for five cities. Everywhere that Christians, the higher percentage Christians go to church, you can watch the social statistics rise. Uh, uh, what did I just say? I just said, big churches don't transform culture. <laughs> we have this idea, and pastors, they're, they're, they think, I'm helping my city. I have a church of 10,000. Yeah, what just happened is you took the light out of the city. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but I bet you have if you've been a Christian any length of time. In the last days... The world's going to get darker and darker, and the church is going to get, help me, brighter and brighter. How many, time, how many of you have heard a message like that? Yeah, if you're, if you're anywhere as close to my age, that was the message of the day. And then I started reading the Bible. <laughs> it's a really nominal idea. Jesus said, first he said, I'm the light of the world. And two chapters later he said, you're the light of the world. Did you notice he didn't say, you're the light of the church? Next verse. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but he sets it on a lampstand so everyone could see. Now you got to kind of think, this is before electricity, so just kind of think, you light a lamp. You know, the, we had electricity out for two weeks at our house last year. And, and we, we were using uh, lanterns and, and candles. And I was like, oh, this is really, the illustration is much clearer. Like you light a, a lamp and you put it up as high as you can so that it casts as much light as possible, right? And then he said, a city on a hill can't be hidden. Next verse. Do your good works in such a way that people see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. This is all the same scripture. Okay, first of all, where's the light? In the world. <laughs> he didn't say, you're the light of the church. He said, you're the light of the world. So if the world's getting darker, what's the problem? Oh, baby. You're going to get me going now. I'm saying, then we create eschatologies to make it okay. Well, bro, the devil... I thought the devil got defeated on the cross. How the heck did he get his power back? In my book, I call it the huddle effect. We go to church so often that we don't have time to actually be a light to anybody in the world because we spend all of our time building the church. Jesus said, I will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 127 times he said, you extend the kingdom. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and say, what? The kingdom, help me, has come near you. <laughs> and they went everywhere, the book of Acts, preaching the what? Kingdom, not the church. We build the church and wonder who's extending the kingdom. Part of the problem is we think the church is the kingdom. I'd propose that all of the church is in the kingdom. But not all the kingdoms in the church. <laughs> this is a little side note, but I, I want to tell you that God's not in heaven. 
because heaven and earth will pass away. Therefore, heaven is temporal. But God is infinite. So if God was in heaven, then where did God live before there was one? I propose that God is not in heaven. Heaven's in God. God is bigger than heaven. On your side. Am I going to heaven? Just can someone just tell me I'm going to heaven? And when I get there, will God be there? I just want to know Jesus loves me. This message is so confusing. I'd like to propose that God didn't make heaven for man. Because Adam was supposed to eat the first tree, which means he would have never died. And the second to the last chapter of Revelation, chapter 21, says, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down. Okay. I'm trying to say that we have created a powerless gospel. We're waiting for Jesus to come back on a rescue mission. And he said, make disciples of all nations. We make disciples in nations. And Jesus said, make disciples of nations. And by the way, that wasn't a new idea Jesus came up with. The promise to Abraham is that you would be a father to many nations. Romans 4 says, and he was the heir of nations. <laughs> no, he said, it says in Romans 4 says, and he was the heir to the world. Do you know Muslims are discipling five nations, Christians zero? Muslims are discipling five nations, Christians zero. Do you know 3% of the population of the United States is determining the entire political agenda? 3% is what you're afraid of. In California, last week, they passed a reformation that pastors cannot teach against LGBTQ. They can't teach homosexuality as a sin anymore. Now, it was a reformation. It, wasn't, it hasn't passed the law, but they just passed it last week in California. That literally, you can't follow your Bible anymore. And Christian's like, I'm so mad. Well, you're not doing anything. <laughs> okay. I'm not talking about activism. I'm talking about leadership. Activism is a reaction to what's already happened. You do that when you haven't, when you can't do anything else because you're not really leading. You're just following. We spend all our time reacting to what people did wrong. One day we were talking about teaching about, about homosexuality in our church. Our, our senior leadership team was talking about doing a series on homosexuality. And I, I said, we can't teach on homosexuality. We haven't talked about, we haven't talked about sexuality. <laughs> it's going to feel like a big old reaction. <laughs> well, we don't teach on the right version. How are we going to teach on the perversion? <laughs> right, why don't we start with teaching people about sex <gasps> in church? Yeah, it's from Genesis to Revelation. God talks about sex. We're the only ones who don't. We say penis and turn white. We're like, oh. 
my God. Martha, let's get out of here as quickly as possible. And then we wonder why there is shame on God's beautiful thing. Well, Johnny, these are your ears. This is your nose. This is your, this is your tongue. That's your dinky. Don't touch your dinky. Bad. You bad. Shame. And we shame God's beautiful gift. And we think we're like helping our children. And then we wonder why our children go find answers everywhere else because we're like, we're not going to tell them. And when we do, like we're sweating profusely like, okay, I'm going in. Come on, honey, you're coming with me. No, no, not that. Just dumb. Dumb and dumber. You know why you're laughing, don't you? All of you. Especially you white people. Okay. I need to quit. I have a lot more to say, but I I have, I have tomorrow. No, I want to tell you that Jesus preached messages that thin the crowds also. So if you don't come back, I'll be like Jesus. It'll be like my 12 disciples right here. We'll be like those people. They're just so evil. I mean, the question is, like, how do you transform a city? Part part of the challenge is that we don't actually know what we're doing. I mean, I'm I'm serious now. It's like a joking aside. Like we don't know what we're doing, so it's like God says, "Be the light of the world." We're like, "What the frick are you doing?" I'm shining. I'm walking neighborhoods shining. Dude, you ain't saving no electricity, I'll tell you that right now. You ain't Moses. We are not putting anything over your face. And I, I want to talk about it in, others, in the other two sessions, but I, I seriously like, Jesus said, the next verse, do your good works in such a way, key, right? Let your light shine before men in such a way. They see your good works, Did you get that? Jesus just called light good works. Did you get that? A super simple. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works. What? And they glorify your Father who's in heaven. He just said light is a metaphor for good works. Part of the challenge, I don't know, maybe you guys are different in Texas, but part of the challenge is is that we have an agenda. We love with an agenda. 
Like we come into our city to help and we have an agenda. It feels like when you go buy a car on a car lot. Right? If you're a car salesman, God bless you, I love you. But you step on a car lot and they're like, hi, how are you doing? Oh, I love that shirt. Oh, those shoes are so nice. It's bullcrap. You, you don't like my shirt or my... You're here to sell a car. I'm here to buy one. Can we stop the crap? Let's, th- let's be real. And it feels like that when we interact with people. Like we have a goal. In denominationalism, I am required. See, I can't be friends with people who I don't agree with. So if I can't get you to agree with me, then I have to agree with you, which is why we've normalized sin in the church. I can't get them to believe that this is wrong, so I'll just be with you because I don't want to lose you, and I know that if you don't agree with me, you won't come back. That's why we're ordaining people who live a lifestyle of sin because I don't want to offend anyone because the goal is to fill the church. And I'd propose that how many butts you put in a seat on a Sunday morning has nothing to do with what you're doing for the kingdom. I mean, if that was true, Taylor Swift is a better pastor than you. Fills stadiums with people. I'm saying we have to have another way we keep score. Denominationalism, I keep score by how many people I put in a seat on a Sunday morning, but in apostleships, I keep score by how am I affecting and infecting culture? What would happen if we just loved people? Okay. I know all the evangelists are going to be crazy. We can't just do that. we got to give them the four. Can you imagine Jesus saying, okay, who wants to follow me? Pray this prayer. Did you pray the prayer? <laughs> Nobody ever got saved by praying a prayer in the entire Bible. How about this one? Raise your hand. I see your hand. You're born again. You're born again. Where do you find it anywhere in the Bible? I'm simply saying, you're, you're not just raising your hand. You're part of a family. You become part of a family. That's why you're called a disciple. That means someone's discipling you. You inherently have a mother and a father. You have people that care for you. They're walking out your salvation with you. Am I making sense? There's such a big difference between Christianity and following Jesus in the 21st century. Can I live with my girlfriend and be a Christian? Probably. Because Christianity has become agreeing with a philosophy. <laughs> yeah, you can live with your girlfriend and be a Christian, but you can't live with your girlfriend and follow Jesus because that ain't the way he's going. <laughs> he ain't going that way. Can I be a, a homosexual and be a Christian? Probably. But you can't be a follower of Jesus because he ain't going that way. Well, you don't understand how great my temptation is. Well, Jesus did. He said, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. 
If your hand offends you, cut it off. Or it's better to go to heaven with one hand than to hell with both. <laughs> this is Jesus' example of kindness. <laughs> Jesus, I'm really struggling with masturbation. Cut off your hand. <laughs> but, okay, cut them both off. This, this Jesus, can you imagine your son has, a trouble, has trouble with pornography and you send him to the pastor and he comes back one eye gone? What happened? Jesus, pastor read me the scripture and then pulled out a knife. I'm saying we, we have a whole different idea. Like we want to make everybody comfortable and happy. Don't offend anybody. Jesus is so kind. I'm like... Sometimes he is, and sometimes he isn't. But one thing's for sure, that it costs to follow Jesus. It costs. We're in the kingdom. Evangelism, like, what would it be like if we just, I'm sorry, I need to be done. I have two minutes. What would it be like if I just loved my city? What would it be like if I just sat with the mayor and I said, how can we serve you? Well, I don't know. And they're thinking like, I don't want to go to his church. <laughs> I, I got a call from the sheriff on the way here today. And he said, uh, he left a message because I missed him. And he said, hey, you know that drone program you have? You bought drones for the police department? We're the sheriff's department and we need some. Can you get us some drones? That was the message he sent me. <laughs> because uh, when I sat with a police chief a year and a half ago, we had lunch, and I said, how can I help you? And he said, well, I don't know. I said, you don't need help. He said, I need all kinds of help. I said, well, what kind of help do you need? He said, well, we need drones. Do you want to buy us drones? I said, sure. Well, what kind of drones do you need? And he told me, and we spent $22,000 buying drones and training we spent uh, $1.2 million on keeping four of their officers. I'm saying, like, they're saying, I'm saying, what do you need? And they're saying, are you serious? We need this. I, I wanna, I'm going to read you just a part of an article that was in the San Francisco Chronicle. May 21st, 2019. Title of the article, Is This Heaven or Reading? The Shasta County city of 91,000 is home to a church of Bethel with 11,000 members and a commitment to a community so intense it's almost supernatural. <laughs> no institution in our state is better at engaging with their hometown. While the experts say civic engagement is supposed to be strategic, planned, and targeted at specific issues, Bethel's engagement with Reading is big and broad touching almost every aspect of civil life. It's grounded not in language of activism, but in celebration and love of God, of the place you live, and of the people in that place. The lack of structure in Bethel's assistance to its hometown suggests a broader lesson for community building. Stop overthinking things and just throw yourself, heart and soul, into addressing people's needs. When Reading's Civic Auditorium was failing, Bethel helped put together a nonprofit advanced Reading to fix its management. When the, when the Reading Police Department was about to lay off four officers, Bethel raised money to keep the cops on. 
After the car fire destroyed more than 1,000 residents last summer, Bethel gave $1,000 cash to every family, church member or not, that lost their home. Bethel also connected Reading to the world. Bethel has a global disaster response team and a Christian music collective with international reach. And they helped persuade United Airlines to start a daily nonstop service between LAX and Reading in this month. Right. Well, let me be clear. We didn't help persuade. We put up $600,000. And we raised the difference, $1 million. The Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, a nationwide leader in attracting foreign students, has helped internationalize the city. Bethel inspires service with two big messages. First, it teaches through God individuals can triumph over all challenges and experience miracles. Second, the church constantly celebrates Reading and highlights the opportunities to join its, uh, in community projects. And this is a quote from, uh, I, let's see who this quote's from. Oh, from the city council. Uh, Bethel really encourages everyone to take ownership of, the, of its area and to live your faith in a way that's felt, says the mayor, Julie Winter, a church board member. Bethel says that God is for you, so who can be against you? So why not start a new business? Why not volunteer to make the city an amazing place? Why not, in my case, run for city council? It goes on to talk a little bit about other stuff. Um, I was going to find you one more quote. Oh, within Reading, Bethel's growth has raised public concerns about whether the church is taking over the town. <laughs> but around town, many view Bethel as heaven sent. Its theology may be strange, but where would the city be? Our, our kids never did that. Brother, lead him to Christ right now. Just <laughs> Sorry. I get it. Its theology may be strange, but where would the city be without it? Usually, when my phone rings, someone wants something, said the police chief, Roger Moore. But when they call, it's always to ask, what do we need? They have never asked me for anything. Anyway, it goes on like that for two pages, and then... Is that awesome? Today, Fox News came out with a very similar article, pages long, about the impact of Bethel on a city. I, I, I want to say that that only happens if you proactively, on purpose, do it. It doesn't happen by accident. It only happens if you gather a bunch of folks together and say, how do we change our city? It doesn't happen because you pray about it. You need to pray about it, but then you need to go do something. And I'm finding that it's not that hard. It's not that hard. Like when political people find out that you actually want to help their city and you have no agenda, keyword, no agenda. I'm not in the police chief's office trying to lead him to Christ. I'm not sitting with city council asking them about their relationship with Jesus. I'm like, what do you need? We put 2,400 students to work in, in, in the city every week. If you go to the school, you work in the city. Why do I do that? Because when you go home and you start your own church, I want you to know it's not all about you. You're not changing your city. You're not doing apostolic work. Okay, I'm way over. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for all y'all. How'd I do? Oh, y'all. Where'd you stand?
I have to be honest, I, I lay awake at night very often, more than a day a week, dreaming about what our city could be like. Could it be like Paris? Could it be like Geneva? Could it be like Augustine's city of God? Like, what would it look like if God had his way? I'm not trying to Christianize our city. I'm trying to kingdomize our city. Part of the challenge is when Christians become politicians, they try to make everything that's, everything that's sent illegal. And they honor Christians above atheists and Muslims and Mormons. And how many know if you're a city official, you're not a pastor of the city. You're a leader. You treating a Muslim worse than you treat a Christian is an unbalanced gain that Proverbs talks against. If you want to treat Christians with greater favor, you need to be a pastor, not a city council person. Because <laughs> your job is to represent all the people. Okay. Lord, teach us how to lead. Teach us how to disciple nations. Lord, I pray that everyone today would get pregnant with a vision. Well, you didn't let me finish, man. You aborted my mission. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would get pregnant with a vision for their city. However big it is, however small it is, that they would go home and say, Lord, what have you called me to do to make my corner of the world your corner of the world? How can I bring light in a way that people see my good works and they glorify you? How do you get credit for my works? Lord, how do I do ordinary things in a way no one's ever seen before? Lord, I pray for Solomon wisdom. Like the Queen of Sheba comes and sees the way a table's set and goes, there's got to be a God. The way the waiters are dressed and said, you are twice as wise as I heard. Lord, give us wisdom that can be seen, felt, touched, tasted. Lord, give us the kind of wisdom that the world can see that you're involved in our thinking. And God, may you bless our city. May our city be a city on a hill. And may all the nations of the world go, those crazy Christians, I don't even like them, but they are so smart. I bless these people in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com.